Hello, and welcome to Green Tea with D-Man. This is episode 1.7, Antonio Salazar, Portugal and the Spanish Civil War. Most historians agree that the Spanish Civil War was an unavoidable event. The problems which led to the conservative nationalists launching a coup in July 1936 were not new creations, but rather were issues and sharp divisions which had been festering for a century between the liberal and social democratic left and the traditional monarchist and conservative right. Spain witnessed three civil wars between 1821 and 1876, which were fought over the direction of the country from its traditional monarchist form to a liberal constitutional entity. While those in the conservative camp won the first civil war of 1821 to 1823, it was the liberal left which claimed victory in the more decisive conflicts of 1833 to 1840 and 1869 to 1876. Even during the First World War, when Spain remained neutral, regionalists, democratic reformists, and conservative military officers clashed, which led to three unsuccessful revolts by the spring of 1917. Spain was a nation boiling with tensions, and after the military disaster of Spanish forces at the hands of the Moroccan Riffian fighters in July 1921, the ongoing labor violence in Barcelona, and regionalist terrorism across Catalonia, an aristocratic general named Miguel Primo de Rivera made a pronunciamento on September 13, 1923, and became de facto dictator of Spain while propping up the monarchy of King Alfonso. At first, the king and the army supported Primo Rivera, especially since Alfonso himself was responsible for urging the army into its devastating defeat at the Battle of Anual in July 1921. However, despite some success in the early years, Primo Rivera's dictatorship proved to be in over its head as he was unable to take the drastic steps necessary to fix the ongoing social and economic issues plaguing Spain. Ultimately, his government fell out of favor, and after realizing he was no longer supported by the king or the army, Primo Rivera stepped down in January 1930. Eventually, King Alfonso accepted the writing on the wall, and he abdicated his throne on April 14, 1931, after municipal elections saw Republicans swept into power. Now, right around this point is probably one of the last moments which could have seen Spain take a different path than it did into civil war. I say that because the Second Republic in Spain was a lot like the First Republic in Portugal, in that Republicans took direct aim at religion, the Catholic Church, and landowners. The difference is that Spain was a bit more radical, in that there were many more anarcho-syndicalists and socialists in Spain who were willing to use violence in knocking down the structure of the Catholic Church and destroying the old conservative hierarchy. After elections in June 1931 saw a majority of Republicans and Socialists elected to the Spanish Cortes, or Parliament, a wave of anti-clerical violence ensued, with pro-Republican elements killing Catholic clergy and burning down churches. Over the next five years, violence begat violence, as leftists killed members of the clergy and members of the Spanish Civil Guard, while those on the right replied with violence against leftists, and often showed no mercy to the anarcho-syndicalists of the National Confederation of Labor, the CNT, or the socialist-led General Union of Workers, or the UGT. 
The leftist government failed to act against these heinous crimes, and about this time the conservatives and other elements of the right decided it was time to mobilize against the left. At first this was done successfully through a political alliance led by José María Gilrobles of Catholic groups called the Spanish Confederation of the Autonomous Right, or CEDA, which managed to win the most seats in the Spanish general election held on November 19, 1933. Governing along with the Radical Republican Party, Gil Robles and the CEDA led the way in overturning many of the drastic measures taken by the Republicans and Socialists between 1931 to 1933. However, the problems confronting Spain were not resolved simply by axing initiatives taken by the Spanish left, as the economy continued to stagnate and violence increased. One specific instance of the violence between conservative authorities and the labor unions came in 1934, when miners in the northern region of Astoria launched an uprising against conservatives winning the election. Soviet councils were established by the UGT, and in response, Spanish armed forces, largely backed by Moroccan troops, crushed the uprising with overwhelming force. In response, forces on the left decided to band together and form the Spanish Popular Front, in a bid to win back power from the right. Then came the February 1936 elections, which saw the Popular Front narrowly defeat the CEDA-led National Bloc. 4,451,300 votes to 4,375,800. Despite the close vote results, the Popular Front ended up taking 285 seats to only about 131 for the National Bloc. The Popular Front had campaigned on promises to grant amnesty to the miners who had launched the armed rebellion against the CEDA-led government in 1934, as well as promises of agrarian reform and recognition of Catalan autonomy, thus supporting regionalist desires to undermine the central Spanish state. The largest party in the Popular Front, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, or PSOE, led by Largo Caballero, often described as the Spanish Lenin, had campaigned telling voters they would nationalize the land, dissolve both the army and the civil guard, and eliminate all religious institutions while expropriating their property. Its main newspaper, the aptly named El Socialista, proclaimed a week after the election that they were determined to do in Spain what the Bolsheviks had done in Russia following the 1917 revolution. For those familiar with the violence and upheaval perpetrated by the Bolshevik revolution, the right was justified to fear what would come. As soon as election results were announced, the right's worst fears were realized, when workers and supporters of the Popular Front freed the Astorian miners from prison. In the following weeks, over 200,000 peasants violently seized land from its owners with backing from the Popular Front. Coupled with mass strikes and demonstrations across the country by the UGT and CNT, and the reorganization of the army, along with coordinated killings of civil guards, the boiling point was reached, and on July 17, 1936, a group of army officers declared a pronunciamento, which would kick off nearly three years of wretched, disastrous civil war. With that quick intro to the Spanish Civil War covered, let's move on to Portugal's concerns with the rising tension in Spain. As we've covered in past episodes, we know that Antonio Salazar detested 
a bunch of the isms, that being liberalism, socialism, and communism. Couple that with the fact Portugal was much smaller than Spain, and had already faced Spanish aggression numerous times, and the Portuguese fear of a destabilized Spain seems legit. The biggest issue Salazar grappled with, and was most concerned about prior to 1936, was the Spanish Popular Front taking power in Spain, and then in the ensuing civil war, a dreaded fear of what a communist victory would mean for the Iberian Peninsula. The only countries in Europe where a communist party took power before World War II were of course in Russia, which then became the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and in Hungary for about four months in 1919. We will cover the Red Terror of Béla Kun that was Hungary in 1919 in our later series of episodes on Miklos Horthy. But a French-backed Romanian invasion of Hungary eventually ousted Béla Kun and the Hungarian communists. That left the USSR as the lone communist state. Well, in 1928, Joseph Stalin had decided that the proletariat revolution was on a crash course with the liberal capitalist nations, and that the time was ripe for workers in Western European nations to join the international revolution. As part of this initiative, communist parties across Europe and the West made social democrats and left liberals their main enemies. But by 1935, this policy had proven disastrous for Stalin and the Comintern, which was the international organization of communist parties guided by Joseph Stalin. Seeing the rise of fascists in Italy and national socialists in Germany, and yes, they are different, as well as the survival of liberal democracies against communist parties in other Western nations, Stalin reversed course in 1935, and he directed communist parties to form alliances with socialists and social democrats in order to unite as a popular front against the rise of fascism-inspired mobilized masses. This new policy resulted in popular fronts, and by July 1936, communists had managed to gain entrance to power in both Spain and France. And in 1938, the only other successful popular front before World War II was in Chile. Seeing communists and socialists gain power in its two larger neighbors in Spain and France, Portugal was a bit frightened. Spain's former war minister turned prime minister heading into the Civil War was Manuel Azaña, who we remember two episodes ago as the guy who had been selling weapons to Portuguese communists back in 1934. So as you start to paint this picture of leftists rallying in Western Europe and little old Portugal under threat, it becomes clear that Salazar had some tough decisions to make in regards to handling the tensions in Spain. According to Salazar's Undersecretary for War in 1936, Colonel Santos Costa, Salazar only had three options. Clearly Portugal couldn't just stand by, but Salazar could pursue a path of collaboration with Manuel Azaña's government. The problem there, of course, was that Azaña had pretty much burned that bridge between the armed shipments to Portuguese communists and the fact that there were now a bunch of communists and socialists in Azaña's government. In fact, as early as 1931, Salazar had put out feelers to the British and the hopes of a united strategy in the event a communist victory ever occurred in Spain. The British gave no guarantees of help if that were to occur. Second option up was for Portugal to pursue a policy which would cause a balkanization of Spain by supporting autonomous movements in the numerous regions to include Catalonia, the Basque Country, Galicia, etc. 
This was a strategy that really had no basis in reality, because while it is true Spain consists of different states within its borders even to this day, the tap dancing that would have been required by Salazar and his ministers, in coordination with the great powers, just would not have worked out, and instead probably would have led to Spanish armed response to Portuguese meddling. I think the icing on the cake to not taking this path was that Great Britain's foreign minister, Anthony Eden, was unwavering in his support to protecting Spanish integrity. Lastly, and the most likely to succeed, was pursuit of an Iberian pact of friendship with fellow Catholic conservatives in Spain, with men such as General Francisco Franco. In fact, Salazar had already laid the groundwork for Option 3, as his regime was kept aware of the growing coup plot as early as March 1936, and in May 1936, Salazar had personally met with an exiled Spanish conservative, the Marquis of Quintanar, who supposedly laid out the state of the military forces aligning against the Republican regime. On July 18, 1936, as the uprising spread from North Africa to mainland Spain, Antonio Salazar met with PVDE commander Captain Agostinho Lorenzo, the Portuguese Minister of Interior, the Marquis of Quintanar, and the leader of the coup himself, General José Sanjojo. On July 19th, Salazar met with President Carmona to give him an update on the situation and to discuss Portugal's options, and then he went on to the PVDE headquarters to issue orders on policing the border with Spain and to listen to the latest intelligence reports. The next day, on July 20th, General José Sanjojo hopped aboard a small biplane in what he thought would be a triumphant entrance to nationalist Spain, However, he had decided to bring a Kardashian amount of clothes, which ended up weighing the plane down and caused it to crash upon takeoff. Sanjojo died in the crash, and leadership of the coup passed on to Generals Emilio Mola and Francisco Franco. General Mola then assigned a nationalist military officer, General Miguel de Zuniga, to Lisbon in order to coordinate aid for his forces. With assistance from Gil Robles of the CEDA, and Francisco Franco's older brother, Nicolas Franco, the nationalists were able to set up an office in Lisbon where they began purchasing and shipping arms from Germany and Italy. In the early days of the conflict, Spanish exiles across Portugal lent as much aid to the uprising as they could, including turning their estates into airfields, as José Puqueto Rebelo did, allowing German Junkers transports to land before heading off to Morocco to help ferry nationalist troops back across to mainland Spain. The final nail in the coffin for Salazar and the Estado Novo in regards to consideration of whether they should aid Franco's forces came at the end of July, as the Republican ambassador to Portugal, Claudio Sanchez Albonos, noted a massive change in attitude from the Portuguese. The arming of communist, socialist, and libertarian party members and workers' militias proved to Salazar that there could be no diplomatic solution, and the best hope for his country was to arm and support the nationalists while working towards a friendship pact with its leaders. According to reports produced by our old friend Pedro Teotonio Pereira, who was now Salazar's main man in Spain, all options were on the table when it came to aiding the nationalists. In these reports, Pereira suggested Portugal could take advantage of the banditry and violence occurring in the Spanish province of Badajoz by proposing to the Republican government that Portuguese troops would happily occupy the province and restore order for Madrid. 
A month after this report was sent to Salazar in August 1936, nationalist forces scored one of their earliest victories of the conflict by capturing Badajoz, with the aid of Portuguese border authorities who blocked Republicans from moving back and forth across the border and capturing as many as they could, while allowing nationalist soldiers to move about freely. Other suggestions from Pereira included outright diplomatic recognition of the nationalist government as the sole legitimate government of Spain. Apparently, Pereira's emotions snowballed because he then suggested Portugal rally the nation against Republican Spain, provide full military aid to the nationalists, recognize the nationalist government, and even mobilize the Portuguese army for action. Eventually, Salazar's cooler head prevailed and Lisbon took the safer route by pouring their efforts into forming a guarantee of British support against any aggression by a Bolshevik Spain. So this will bring us into the next part of this episode I want to talk about, and that was mainly Portugal's efforts on the international stage. Portugal's primary concern upon the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War was, of course, how it would affect the Portuguese nation. Salazar actually had a delicate hand to play in this situation, because leftists such as Largo Caballero had made it abundantly clear they were aiming, with Soviet support, to establish a federation of Iberian Soviet republics, which would include Portugal under a Bolshevik banner. On the flip side, there were many Spanish nationalists, including many in the Falangist movement, who wanted to once again incorporate Portugal into Spanish holdings. Fortunately for Salazar, Francisco Franco was not of that mind, and instead, he wanted to ensure there was a stable, friendly, and traditionalist regime next door. However, Spain also bordered the Secularist Republic of France, and in May 1936, the Popular Front had swept into power in France and saw its socialist leader, Léon Blum, take over as prime minister. Due to the ongoing battle between the right and left in France during the mid-1930s, the French government lacked an aggressive and determined foreign policy, so it largely relied on the United Kingdom to dictate policy for the Allies. The major fear for the French and British during this time was of course a civil war in Spain escalating into a wider European war, much as what happened with the First World War, where a small internal event in Austria-Hungary escalated quickly and ended up drawing in nations from across the globe. Seeing the Soviets, Germans, and Italians sending money, weapons, and volunteers to Spain alarmed the French and British. In response, France and Britain declared they would not supply arms to either side and called for a non-intervention agreement. While Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union agreed to the non-intervention pact in principle, there was little hope those nations would actually abstain from fueling the fire in Spain. Portugal, on the other hand, had the most to lose in this situation, and Foreign Minister Armindo Montero sent a list of conditions to the French and British which showed there was a deep fear in Portugal's governing circle that spillover from a communist victory would require Western support to the tiny country. At the end of August 1936, Italy suggested a commission be set up by the major powers to supervise the working of the non-intervention pact, which Germany and the Soviet Union agreed to. By the beginning of September, all of the major powers had banned the export of arms to Spain, including Portugal, but there was a feeling in Lisbon that the British and French were unable to understand the situation Portugal found herself in. This is the central theme of Portugal's foreign affairs between 1936 to 1939. Salazar sought and ultimately attained Britain's respect for Portugal after centuries of being treated as a very minor partner 
whom the British could push around at will. Every time Anthony Eden applied pressure to the Portuguese, Salazar would push back, and with help from Foreign Minister Armindo Montero, who would then go on to be the ambassador to the UK, they eventually would shift the balance of the relationship. On September 1st, 1936, Montero sent a note to the French minister in Lisbon informing him that Portugal could not join the non-intervention committee at this time due to concerns Portugal had, mainly that it was unrealistic for the major powers to agree on a multi-party agreement, considering France was ruled by a leftist government in favor of the Republican Spanish government and that other nations did not have to deal with any spillover. After the first meeting of the Non-Intervention Committee in London on September 9th was viewed as a success among the 26 nations who were present, Montero realized Portugal was isolating herself, and that perhaps by joining the committee now, they could have a seat at the table which would allow them to guide the attitude of Anthony Eden and the British. While Montero was sold on the idea to join the committee, finally, Antonio Salazar was not. He wrote in an official note in September, that the Spanish nationalists in the army had risen up, not against parliamentary democracy, as the leftists claimed, but against the spread of communism, which had taken power in the February elections. After several weeks of heated conversations over the matter, Salazar accepted Montero's counsel, and he agreed to join the committee during its meeting on September 28th. Within a week, the Soviets were accusing the Portuguese of manufacturing arms for the nationalists, transporting military units, allowing use of their airfields for German Condor Legion attacks, and several other belligerent accusations. Armindo Montero, in a letter addressed to the committee, rebutted the Soviet charges one by one, and then with intricate detail, he laid out instances of Soviet intervention that included the sending of tanks, aircraft, gold, volunteers, advisors, weaponry, and common turn agents. In addition, Montero explained how the Soviet ambassador to Spain, Marcel Rosenberg, was coordinating a communist front to take over the Republican government. Interesting note is that Marcel Rosenberg would be recalled to Moscow and then executed by Joseph Stalin in 1937 as part of the Great Purge, only a year into his tenure in Spain. Anyways, a week after Montero rebutted the Soviets, Anthony Eden told the House of Commons, Almost the whole burden of criticisms of Soviet Russia is addressed against one country, and that the smallest of the three powers, Portugal. Not have we any information whatever to support the Soviet charges. As the war continued for the next two and a half years, it became glaringly obvious that the non-intervention pact was not worth the paper it was being written on, as the Soviets, Germans, Italians, Portuguese, and even the French and Mexicans all provided varying degrees of aid to the belligerent nations. In fact, Mexico City was the capital of the Republican government in exile from 1940 to 1946. Portugal's stance remained the same, and eventually, by assuming the foreign ministry portfolio, Salazar was able to convince Anthony Eden that a victory for the nationalists was not an automatic victory for the Germans and Italians. Instead, Salazar believed, and ultimately proved, that an Iberian pact could stay neutral and free of Axis influence in the event of a major war. The Spanish Civil War proved to be devastating, not just in the human scale of deaths and psychological scarring, but the economy and national infrastructure was wrecked. This would of course mean that Spain would require a big power to help them rebuild, 
and it was Salazar's mission to make sure that the nationalists under Francisco Franco would prevail and then rely on Portugal and Great Britain for aid and assistance. These exhaustive efforts eventually bore fruit, much to the disgust of pro-Nazi and pro-fascist elements in Portugal who wanted to see Spain and Portugal under the Axis banner. History shows it was the right move by Salazar, but not one that the Allies necessarily rewarded. Portuguese concerns over the violence tearing apart its beloved neighbor had its justification, as several violent attacks were carried out against Salazar, as well as against government institutions and pro-nationalist locations. In summer of 1936, Antonio Salazar received several threatening letters in the mail, but things escalated in January 1937, when explosions rocked Lisbon, targeting the Spanish nationalist Casa de España, the Portuguese radio club, facilities owned by the American-owned Vacuum Oil Company, which today is part of ExxonMobil, and also Portuguese military installations. Informants for the Portuguese officials serving in Paris claimed the attacks were the work of Comintern agents who had been sent by Stalin to undermine Salazar and his regime in order to facilitate an Iberian-wide Bolshevik revolution. Remember, of all the nations who were aiding the nationalists, it was the Portuguese who were primarily targeted by Soviet complaints to the Non-Intervention Committee. However, according to historian Felipe de Meneses, it was not the work of communist agents, but rather a cell of anarchists, to include men such as Emilio Santana, Francisco Damiao, and Raul Pimenta. The anarchists and communists had shown their appetite for violence in the past, and a plan was hatched to assassinate Antonio Salazar in a go-big-or-go-home Hail Mary to bring down the Estado Novo and cut Francisco Franco off from Portuguese supply lines, or as some nationalist members called Lisbon, the Port of Castile. At this point in time, Antonio Salazar never really felt that his life was under threat. In fact, he had a habit of randomly showing up in different towns and at different events without providing a heads-up or allowing his security to establish any type of secure cordon for his presence. Salazar was known for taking walks around the streets of Lisbon at the end of his workday, where he was able to directly interact with the populace. Kind of crazy, isn't it? Nowadays, a politician, let alone sitting head of government, wouldn't fathom walking around the streets of D.C. or New York without a security presence. But this was the way Salazar operated, until the assassination attempt of July 4th, 1937. On most Sundays, Antonio Salazar would travel to a friend's residence in Lisbon to attend Mass at Josu Trocado's private chapel. Well, an anarchist cell knew this routine, and they originally planned to acquire a vehicle and machine guns, with the idea being they would ambush Salazar's car as it approached the house. This original plan is similar to the plan by Czech resistance fighters who killed Reinhard Heydrich in 1942. Well, fortunately for Salazar and his associates, the assassins were unable to acquire vehicles for the ambush and instead decided to illegally buy some dynamite from a pyrite mine located in the southeast of Portugal. The assassins knew that Salazar's car always parked next to a manhole cover on the Waboza de Bocage Avenue, providing them an opportunity to place dynamite under the street well before Salazar arrived from Mass. On the morning of July 4th, as Salazar's car came to a stop in front of Trocado's home, the would-be assassins detonated the charge. 
The damage was severe, with windows shattered up and down the street and material damage to homes all around the explosion, in addition to a crater about 6 feet by 14 feet left in the middle of the street. Amazingly, no one was injured. Salazar, whose suit and hat were covered with dust, decided to carry on with his plans, and he walked into the chapel for mass as if nothing had happened. The ensuing investigation was a disaster. The Germans tried to pin foreign involvement on the British in the hopes of cracking the Portuguese-British alliance and to continue pulling the Iberian nations into the Nazi orbit. Instead, Salazar held a rally where he praised the Portuguese people's resilience and then reinforced the British-Portuguese friendship in a short speech. The PVDE took the lead on investigating and ended up beating false confessions out of five guys they randomly caught in an alley. Eventually, the chief magistrate hearing the case threw out the charges against the original five suspects, but it took them a full year and immense physical and mental torment before they made their freedom. However, the five men who actually did carry out the bombing were eventually arrested, and this time without any press coverage, sent before the special military court. Salazar was embarrassed by the failures of the PVDE, but he did not make it public. Instead, he back-channeled an agency overhaul, and he invited the Italians to help advise in restructuring and modernizing the PVDE. Salazar was a calm and cool guy, but the assassination attempt forced him to change his beloved routine. Gone were the days of him taking walks around Lisbon or attending colonial exhibitions unannounced, much to the consternation of exhibit hosts, or living in an apartment downtown with his adopted daughters. After July 1937, Antonio Salazar was relegated to living in an official residence located behind the Sao Bento Palace, which is the home of Portugal's parliament, and in 1937 was where the assembly convened. Included in the new residence was a chapel, meaning Salazar could fulfill religious duties without going into the open. In addition, his office was next door, meaning he didn't have to commute for work. All of this reinforced the criticism he had endured through the years that he was a recluse and a mean personality, as his public exposure dwindled and his gardens soon saw much more of him than everyday Portuguese. As a result of competing interests in Spain, and the dangers present inside the country, the British, French, Germans, and Italians sent agents to Portugal to build intelligence networks. In the case of the British, there was a fear as World War II approached that a German invasion with help from an Axis-aligned Spain would result in Portugal falling to the Nazis, and efforts were made with pro-British Portuguese to build a guerrilla network in the event that worst-case scenario came to fruition. For Portugal's PVDE, the primary mission was to expel all leftists from the country and to turn Spanish leftists over to Franco's forces. In fact, after the founding of the Second Spanish Republic in 1931, many wealthy and conservative Spaniards fled to Portugal, which proved such a heavy burden on police resources that eventually the PVDE decided to collect as much information as possible on all of the Spaniards in the country to include their whereabouts, activities, and home addresses, which would allow the facilitation of cooperation from them and provide intelligence for the Estado Novo. As part of this influx of like-minded individuals from Spain, a working relationship developed, such as the one highlighted earlier involving the Marquis of Quintanar. And by the time Franco rose to power, there was a tight-knit and close relationship between the PVDE and the Nationalist Spain police. 
Spanish leftists who attempted to flee the battlefield in Spain across the border to Portugal were captured and after a stint in a camp, usually sent back to Franco's forces to almost certain death. Estimates on the number of Spanish refugees into Portugal run as high as 3,000, as placed by Portuguese historian César Oliveira. As Spanish combatants flowed west into Portugal, between 8,000 to 20,000 Portuguese went east to fight in the conflict. Salazar had signed the agreement with the Non-Intervention Committee, barring citizens from going to fight in Spain, and he had passed decree laws against it. But Spanish authorities had deep connections in Portugal, and a steady trickle of volunteers flowed into Spain during the war. Most of these volunteers ended up serving in the Spanish Foreign Legion, but some fought for the Falangist and Carlist militias, depending on their ideology. Despite the official government's stance on Portuguese citizens going to fight in Spain, Pedro Pereira was known to visit his fellow countrymen in Spain whilst heaping praise on their sacrifices to eliminate the Bolshevik threat to Iberia. These volunteers ended up stuck in a quite a predicament, as many were injured and since they did not have permission of the Estado Novo to go and fight, they could not come home to a hero's welcome or to government pensions for their service. On the other hand, they weren't Spanish citizens, so they couldn't receive preferential treatment for employment when the war ended. As a result, a good number decided to stay in Spain and gain citizenship, with the rest going back to Portugal and acting as muscle for the PVDE against internal dissidents. In a May 1939 speech to the National Assembly, Salazar spoke of Portuguese volunteers who had served in Spain, saying, For some reason, the liberty and independence of Spain appeared to be a postulate of Portuguese policy. And during the recent crisis, the voice of history was heard again, and Portugal remained faithful to this tradition. Contrary to the pledges given by the government for sufficiently obvious political reasons, and as if those pledges ran counter to the thought and inmost feelings of the people, Several thousands of Portuguese, evading in countless ways the vigilance of authorities, left their life and interests and ease, and went to fight for Spain, to die for Spain. It is a source of pride to me that they should have died well. Surprisingly, it seems that Antonio Salazar had little care for the well-being of those Portuguese who fought in Spain, and perhaps this is due to them violating Portuguese law, or because he had much more pressing issues to deal with. As World War II dawned, Lisbon would become its own battleground between Allied and Axis intelligence networks, with the PVDE stuck in the middle, trying to protect Portuguese sovereignty, all the while trying not to go too far in pushing the warring nations into hostile action against Portugal. Salazar was about to take part in what some historians view as the most impressive tap dancing of any small nation during the Second World War. After the assassination attempt in July 1937, Armindo Montero and Antonio Salazar agreed that Portugal's interest in the outcome of Spain's conflict was 1. A nationalist victory under Francisco Franco. 2. A Spanish state free from German and Italian military and political influence. And 3. A Spanish policy that was not anti-English, thereby helping ensure friendly posturing between the Iberian nations. As the war progressed, it became clear that the Nationalists had the upper hand, and even the British got to a point in early 1938 
where they understood the scale had shifted in favor of Franco and his forces. Antonio Salazar, after positive feedback from Armando Montero, decided on April 28, 1938, to address the National Assembly in regards to the conflict in Spain and Portugal's foreign affairs. In this speech, he condemned the embryonic idealism of the League of Nations, repudiated the policies of realism, which was a direct hit at the Nazis in Germany, reaffirmed the Anglo-Portuguese military alliance, and he announced Portugal's recognition of Francisco Franco's government as the sole sovereign of the Spanish nation. Eventually, Pedro Teutonio Pereira was elevated to full ambassador to Spain, and in turn, Franco sent his brother Nicolas to Lisbon as Spain's ambassador, whereupon submitting his credentials to President Carmona, said, Spain will never forget the hand of friendship stretched out to her in her hour of bitterness. Portugal and Spain went on to sign the Iberian Pact on March 17, 1939, which committed the two countries to defending the Iberian Peninsula in the event any other power attacked one of them. This pact was renewed and expanded in 1940 after the fall of France. While the Allies were so sure of Spain entering a war on the side of the Germans and Italians that they neglected thoughtful diplomacy, it was Salazar's exhaustive efforts which saved the Allies from a Spanish intervention in World War II. The Germans wanted a pro-Axis Portugal and Spain, while Britain wanted Portugal to tow its line. Instead, Salazar worked endlessly to navigate a pro-Portuguese foreign policy, one we will discuss more in the next few episodes, as Portugal made its way through World War II and the Cold War, being the odd duck, with bullies not only in Europe, but soon the juggernaut of the United States. As the Spanish Civil War drew to a close in early 1939, it was becoming clear to many in Europe, including Antonio Salazar, that a European-wide conflict was on the horizon, as belligerent actions by Nazi Germany were beginning to strengthen the resolve of France and Britain. For the next episode, we're going to cover the gathering storm in 1939, and then Portugal's situation as war kicked off and consumed the continent and then the world. Until next time, this is Green Tea with D-Man. Thanks for listening.